0: Uh, I wanted to discuss today Abraham and Sarah. I know we talk a lot about uh, Abraham and Sarah in, in Jewish liturgy, in Jewish literature, certainly in the Torah. We talked a lot about Abraham and Sarah. In our prayers, uh, we mentioned the God of Abraham. Abraham, of course, is considered the father of our religion. Uh, but I believe there's been a little bit of an oversimplification of their life story uh, in a minor way, but in a major way, uh, what they actually accomplished. Because if I ask people, okay, what's Abraham's grandest accomplishment? So likely you would say uh, it's his introduction of monotheism. He was the one who developed this idea that there's one invisible God who controls everything. All the powers are coalesced behind one entity in opposition to conventional wisdom of the time, and indeed conventional wisdom that... Lasted for another 1500 years after Abraham is dead, even more than that, 1800 years after Abraham's dead. There was this idea that every power is isolated in one, in one God of sorts, in one entity, one deity. And comes along Abraham with this dramatic idea that there's one power that has all the powers, and everything can only exist as a result of that, and, uh, and that's invisible, and that's something that we, our, our life is about striving to connect to. So that's, that's, I think, what most people think about, uh, about Abraham's accomplishment. And they're not incorrect, because that is indeed Abraham's accomplishment. But what I, want, what I found by discussing or by investigating Abraham's story was that the methods that he actually employed, A, with himself and certainly with the people around him, and his work and his accomplishments weren't necessarily as easy or as linear as that may sound. So it's like, we think of Abraham as being this very clever guy, who comes up with a wonderful idea that we know to be true, of course, and we know that to, to be the idea that conquered, really, the, the idea that won out out of all the ideas present at the time. Of course, it was very controversial, and he had to face resistance, but that's how we think of Abraham. But when we actually look at the story, the way the Torah presents it, uh, and the, um, the resistance that he had to face personally, and the work that he had to invest personally into accomplishing what he did, it really uh, changes our perspective. So I want to give a little background here. So what's the uh, world that Abraham emerges into? Um, he is born, uh, 1948, it's, it's an easy date to remember, 1948 since Adam. So that's, uh, if you start from Adam, you work back from 1948, we're talking about roughly 3,800 years ago. Uh, he is born in Mesopotamia, which is the center, the cradle of civilization. He is called Abraham Ha Ivri. means from the other side, because he was from the other side of the Euphrates River, uh, and he's born in a place called Ur kazdim Where this where this actually is is a little bit of a discussion, a debate. We're not so sure where it is. Uh, his dad seems like a very unremarkable fellow. His brothers, maybe were influenced by him, but Abraham seemed to display something so dramatic from a very early age that set him on a path uh, to differentiate himself and to develop new ideas. Um, At that time, of course, like we mentioned, paganism was rampant and not the kind of paganism that we still have vestiges of it today, which is very docile and very much of being one with nature. It was a much more violent and cruel form of paganism. For example, we know that uh, the idea of child sacrifice, of human sacrifice, was common, was widespread. And that was considered a way of making an offering to to uh, a god of sorts. Uh, there, the, 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 the way of life, the uh, immersion in uh, promiscuity was in ways we can't imagine. The um, male, female prostitutes were common. Uh, the monarchs would all declare themselves as deities of sorts. These are things that we can't imagine. Uh, but you have a king who wants total commitment from their subjects. So they say, well, I'm actually a descendant of this star and I'm a, a demigod at, at, at a minimum and thus, I, they demanded complete fealty from their subjects. Uh, so, for example, the first tyrant that Abraham encounters is fellow by the name of Nimrod. And Nimrod, in Jewish sources, has the anonymity of being someone who recognized God and rebelled nonetheless. He is the one who we say, Yodea tribono He He knew God. He had the intellectual capacity to agree with Abraham when Abraham presented his ideas. But because that would collapse his empire, because his empire is predicated on him being a God, he rejected it. And he suppressed Abraham, and he, and, and he, he suppressed Abraham's movement. So let's talk about Abraham and, and how he developed his ideas. So, The Rambam gives us an interesting background um, to the story of idolatry. How did idolatry get started? What's the uh, nascent beginnings of idolatry? And the idea started off, I would say, in a pretty benign fashion. It was a good idea. A lot of really bad things come out of good intentions, we know historically. Uh, His idea was, uh, or the idea of idolatry, uh, even a thousand years before Abraham, was that The Almighty created all these wonderful beings, all these stars and all these galaxies. And just like a king wants people to respect the ministers, his underlings, probably the Almighty wants us to have honor to respect his major creations. And that de facto gives God honor. So they started praying to the sun and the moon and the stars and the constellations and all these wonderful powers that the Almighty made as a means to honor God. And of course, over the course of time, the, the, the way an idea or the way an innovation is intended to go doesn't always mirror the way it actually evolves into being. Uh, there's a modern example, which um, in the 1950s, there was a decision uh, made by the conservative Jewry halachic board. Uh, up to that time, they demanded full observance of Shabbat by all the members. Problem was, is that some people lived too far away from the synagogue and thus they wouldn't come to the synagogue on Shabbos because they wouldn't drive on Shabbos. So the innovation that they had was that people will be allowed to drive on Shabbos but only to the synagogue. And, you know, you could, we could debate the results, certainly, of what happened. But the intention, it sounds like a good argument. You know, it's a way to bolster Jewish affiliation and Jewish membership and keep people in the fold. Let them drive, but only to synagogue. I spoke to a conservative rabbi a friend of mine. We used to study together. And he said that, in his opinion, in the opinion of people that he respects, that was a great undoing of their movement. Because we know what happened historically was that uh, if you ask people from that movement today uh, about why they drive on Shabbos, they say, well, we're allowed to drive on Shabbos. Or they'll say, well, we're not observant. And this is an unfortunate outgrowth of a good intention. The intention was drive just the synagogue and nowhere else. And now what it actually ends up being is drive just everywhere else and not the synagogue. Um, and that, but that, this is fact, I, you know, this is, this, this is fact and it's, it's acknowledged by members of, of, that, of that community. But it, it shows sometimes when you try to telegraph an innovation, it's very hard for us to have all the foresight to see every possible permutation all the way down the graph. So, you know, we, we may assume that, like, well, it makes sense. We have God and we want to honor God. Let's think of new ways. Let's get together. We'll have a convention of people who want to honor God. How do we come up with new ideas to honor God? Well, I have an idea. Let's honor the sun. Because God created the sun. And what, wouldn't, that, wouldn't there be a, a wonderful way to honor God? And maybe, you know, in a vacuum under certain circumstances, that's a good idea. But it's very hard for us to project what's going to be in three generations down the line. Who knows? And kids are grow; they're raised with this idea that you honor God uh, or the honor the sun. And to them, maybe the last, you know, stop in the train, they didn't get that message. So they drop that, and suddenly they just totally go awry. So what happens over time? the one invisible God that was common knowledge becomes more and more forgotten. It becomes more of a fringe idea and indeed it gets forgotten uh, completely. Uh, And that went and regressed until, of course, the birth of Abraham. Uh, Abraham we're told that from a very young age he began to question. Um, So the Ramam here tells us at the age of three he would think day and night. So we think of Abraham as someone who had some sort of aha moment. He hit pay dirt. Something clicked, right? What we actually find out from the sources, this is the Ramam who collects all the other sources together, what we find is that Abraham didn't have one moment of inspiration. It was actually a prolonged cognitive pursuit of truth that he began from very early and did not stop until he died at the age of 175. So it's 172 years of non-stop pondering, of non-stop thinking, of probing, of investigating. So he gives us an example, I I find this very interesting, because the Bible gives us one example of the questions that, that Abraham would churn. And I think it's ironic, or maybe it's not so, that the question that he asks about the worldview that he was presented is this question that we have to ask today. The question is just as valid. Abram grows up in a family of idolatry. We'll learn about his dad. Abram's dad was actually a wholesaler of little idolatrous figurines. And that's the family and community and society and culture that he grows up with. And Abram starts questioning it. And by the way, this quality of questioning conventional wisdom is a quality that is the hallmark of Jewish scholarship today. And it's interesting to find parallels between Abraham and what made him unique and what made him accomplish great things and what made Jews today, descendants that are 120 or 110 generations removed from him, are displaying almost exactly. So Abraham, what's the question that he asks? The Ram tells us here. He would ponder as follows. How is it possible that the galaxies are all running in, this, in an orderly fashion? Which we could modernize by asking what is or what is the source of the energy that engendered the Big Bang and engenders the movement of Earth? Remember, Earth, if it doesn't move, we're all incinerated because we'll be drawn in to the sun and we will die. A very painful and unfortunate death. So the fact that we're alive is because Earth has energy that's propelling it forward. And thus, it creates this equilibrium where we're being drawn into the sun, but we're being drawn away from the sun, and thus we don't get incinerated. That's a question that's as valid today as when Abraham asked it 3,800 years ago. You know why? Because there's no answer unless you open up your Heart for a reality beyond the rules of physics, beyond the world that we have, that we live in, that we are constrained by. It's not possible for us to create matter. There's no way to do it, or energy for that matter. We can transfer matter, we can transfer energy, but we can't create it. Thus, there has to be some other existence that's not bound by our rules. That Abraham figured out 1,300 years ago. And indeed, today, it's still checkmate to people that reject Abraham's legacy. But this wasn't some sort of uh, one-time thing. This was one example of the question that the Rabbim actually brings us. There's other examples that are brought in other Jewish sources of questions that Abraham asked. But it was a pursuit of day and night. It was relentless. He was a creative innovator. He was also, we'll see, an iconoclast, certainly the way, um, uh, in respect to his generation, but he was also uh, persevered, he had the wherewithal to plug away and ponder and pursue truth, even if it's unpopular, even if it's going to endanger him, as we'll see, and even if, like, you know, it's hard to think, it's hard to think for an hour, to think day and night for years and years and years, that is, is an incredible it's an incredible commitment to do that, and Abraham did that. He had no teacher. He had no instructor. It was just Abraham, one man, asking questions, pondering, investing in day and night from the age of three. And the Ram says, at the age of 40, he got it. What he got is, it's, it's interesting because we're told in certain sources that Abraham came to the idea of God at the age of three. We're told in other sources that Abraham came to the idea of God at the age of 40. Is it possible to reconcile those two? Is it possible to say that there's more than one level of faith? Abram at the age of three had the faith that maybe we have. But he didn't stop there. He deepened it. He developed it. It's actually interesting. The word the Rama uses for what he understood at the age of three versus what he understood at the age of 40 is different. Because at the age of three he had a more primitive understanding of God, like we do. At the age of 40, he at Boro. He recognized, he knew God. That same word is used, by the way, to describe the relationship of a parent and a child. My grandfather pointed this out in one of his books. That the word that a parent, the word that the Torah employs to describe the way a parent knows a child. It's not a theoretical knowledge. You, you, this is your child. You are growing with this. You are uh, You're stewarding this child from the beginning of their lives. You know the child well, and, and, and it's a reality in your life that is almost unmatched by anything. The relationship and the love you have for a child is something that is almost not replicated. It's, not, it's like almost organic. Abraham developed that kind of relationship with God. And, of course, that is a process to get there. So what happens when Abraham has his achievements, he has his developments? Did he harbor them within him? Absolutely not. Abraham went on history's most transformative mission. He would go from town to town. He would debate. He would engage in polemics. He would argue with anyone who would be willing to stand in a ring with him. And what, ha- what happened? He would absolutely trounce them with his clarity of thought, his logic, his overwhelming evidence to the truth of his position. And he would go from town to town, and slowly his movement is growing. It starts off, it's just Abraham. We'll get to how we, he how we meets Sarah as well, and, and they become a tag team. But we know that by the time they make their fateful trip to Israel at the age of seventy-five, Abraham already has tens of thousands of people within his movement, which is incredible without the internet, right? (laughs) It makes it a lot easier to scale movements. So, just to kind of collect where we are. Oh, big time! From place to place, we'll see. we'll, We'll see one story of his opposition. Uh, so clearly we see that Abraham was a dissenter. Abraham was not someone who was placated by conventional wisdom. He wanted—he was a truth seeker, and he was a questioner, and he was an innovative thinker, and he was someone who was committed to the long run. He wasn't just, you know, he he, the pursuit of truth that he displayed didn't stop him no matter what. Now, as a quick aside, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, we're going to do that a lot. Uh, when we talk about us being the chosen people, the, the sources that we have for, uh, for that claim is in the Torah, where the Almighty says again and again that you are going to be our people, You're, you, know, you are going to have the land of Israel, for example. You are going to be God's ambassadors to the world. But being presented as being the chosen people, that makes it seem like it was an arbitrary choice. That makes it seem like, you know, we were chosen randomly. We won the God lottery. When we realize the commitment that Abraham invested into this pursuit, it flips on its head. It's not that God chose Abraham to be his messenger, to be his ambassador, and thus his kids to be the Jewish people. Abraham chose God, and thus Abraham accepted for himself for his family, what would ultimately develop into a tribe and, of course, would become the Jewish people, we accepted upon ourselves this mission of bringing the idea of God into the world and teaching it despite facing tremendous resistance. This is the story of the Jewish people. You know, we, we, we're small, Abraham's really young. We're in a world that is screaming everything that we are coming to fight against. We have a tremendously uphill battle, the resistance is fierce. We have to be creative and innovative. Ultimately, we're going to be successful. But um, clearly, it's not that uh, the Jewish people just got lucky; that we won the lottery. Chosen people is, uh, is you know, is, is not to be understood that it's any rent Abraham acquired by right this mantle of leadership. So, go ahead. It's unclear um, because Abraham, he was preaching ideas. Uh, and we'll see later on, Abraham actually was able to understand Torah without being instructed. So it's not clear. It's a good question. It's a very good question. Well, wait, um, wait a minute. trying to teach truth.
1: But, but, but by um, Batali's question, uh, it implies that when you say rediscover it implies that
0: monotheism was there before. Well, well, Adam had monotheism, right? I would assume Adam... I don't know. I don't well, you read the story, Adam, you know, Adam obviously began with that, but he lost it. He, not him, but progressively over, over thousands of years. It got, it withered away. And Abraham was the only one who discovered and developed this idea independently. There may have been people concurrently that still maintained this tradition. So for example, we know that uh, Shem and Aver, uh, these were two, uh, this tag team, two heroes that were living in Israel at that time. Remember, Abraham is a thousand miles away from them. Abraham is in total isolation. He has no teacher, no instructor. So while this idea may not have been completely dead, uh, it was functionally dead in Abraham's world, but also Abraham did not have any help from anyone else. So, but was Abraham trying to do a religion? I don't think so.
1: Because when I hear tens of thousands of followers, followers mean not followers of one idea, followers
0: of religion. Think right, of well, it but, in, it, but in, I, it w- you think of, think of it as, as an idea that also has outgrowths in behavior. Yeah, so I would say it's a, it's a movement because religion only can only come after there's been revelation. At this point in time, Abraham doesn't have any revelation. Uh, also interesting to note that the Torah picks up Abraham's story at the age of 75. God tells Abraham, go to Israel. And that is the bulk of the story. The two parshas that deal with the story of Abraham, they only start from the age of 75. This is uh, uh, this is the back story the Torah doesn't give, which is a very interesting question on its own right. Why would the Torah not go into detail? The Torah hints at it a lot, but it doesn't tell us in detail this story, and that's an interesting question on its own right. Uh was all this
1: seventy-five year, the first seventy five?
0: How do we know? Well, well they're saying that your question, Bernie, can be asked about post seventy-five years. Because remember, Moshe is the one who gives us the Torah, right? right? So Moshe is Abraham's uh, the sixth uh, generation from Abraham. He's a ways away, uh, five hundred years later. Uh, but he, he, you know, he gave us he, what, what was in, included in the written Torah is from the age of seventy-five and on. But including the oral Torah, also from Moses, both of them came from Moses. Is the batch story as well? But the Torah doesn't make a big deal about elaborating on the batch story um, in the form of the written Torah, but we give to it in the oral Torah as well. The
1: thing is, like you said, he started to think at age three. Yes. About monotheism and Judaism. Where is that written? It's not in the
0: Torah. Well, I said it's in the Oral Torah, but Moshe gave us the Oral Torah and the Written Torah as well.
1: Okay. okay. So where is this Oral Torah?
0: Yes, I'm collecting it. I'm collecting it. There's a bunch of midrashis. There's uh, places in the Talmud. If you want the sources, we could talk about that. Or um, we had heard before. Yes. That Abraham actually was
1: in the uh,
0: teachings under Shem. Well, how could that have been if Shem was in Israel and Abraham was in? were custom. Maybe they might have met later on in life. But at the at the earliest point in Abraham's development it's just Abraham.
1: Have you heard
0: they and they quote sources in the Talmud. Yeah well I it, that that's probably after Abraham arrives to Israel. We know that Abraham had a relationship with them after he comes to Israel. We're, we're right now in the beginning part. Right? Abraham, Abraham, Abraham at the age of 75 is told, go to Israel, leave your family, your household, etc., go to Israel. Um, so this is the backstory. story. Okay, so now, there's a very interesting uh, episode here, a very famous episode, uh, between when Abraham was a child. So like we said, his dad is a, a wholesaler of idols and a, an ardent believer in their powers. And one day you went on vacation. So what do you do when you your vacation? You give the keys to Abraham, very capable young man, very intelligent. He'll run your shop. So some guy comes in, I want an order of idols, so he says to him, tell me, how old are you? He says, I'm 50 years old. 50 years old? And you want to buy this idol? This idol was made yesterday. Why would you want to buy it? Mm-hmm. What can I have more? What experience or what ideas does it have any more than what you have? He's trying to demonstrate to them the you know, the fallacies of, of, of their life belief. So that's one thing that happens. So the guy left, obviously ashamed of the uh, silliness of his pursuit. And then this woman comes in and she's holding a bowl of flour. Common practice you give the flour, you offer the flour to the idol. Okay. So she gives it, drops it off by Abraham, and says, Do me a favor. Offer this to one of the idols. So Abram hatches a plan. He takes an axe. He smashes almost all of the idols. Leaves one of them. Biggest one. And he puts the axe in the guy's hand. And he leaves the bowl of flour right in front of that guy. Dak comes back from vacation, nicely tanned. Want to see, you know, look at the butch. He walks into the idol. He sees a pile of rubble and only one idol left. Hold in the axe. So like, you hey, Abram, what happened? What happened with him in the interim? What, how did this all go so poorly? He says, you won't believe what happened. You won't believe it. This woman came, and she came with a bowl of flour. And she told me to offer it to the idols. And I walked into the room, and I said, okay, I'm going to offer it. Then all the idols started fighting. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. And fighting, fighting. Finally, the big idol went and grabbed the axe and smashed all the other small idols. And then says, this is for me. And he put it right in front of him. So his father tells him, well, wait, wait a minute, what? Are you joking with me? You know that they can't uh, interact in that way. So him tells him, doesn't? Your, your ears don't hear what your mouth is saying? How do you commit your life to something so insane and preposterous As believing in the ultimate power of these figurines that you make yourself that have no power, they don't have any consciousness. They can't think. They can't talk. They can't hear. They can't see. Why would you do that?
1: Financially, maybe.
0: Uh, Well, but no, that's not what he said. He actually actually believed this. So, Terach, Abraham's father, uh, he's distraught. But remember, at this time, they have a greater affinity to their idols and to their belief system than they have even to their own family. So he takes them to Nimrod. Nimrod is the tyrant that we mentioned prior. And uh, Nimrod says, okay, worship the fire. He says, why should I worship the fire? What happens when water comes? Water extinguishes the fire. So water is more powerful. So he says, okay, we'll worship the water. He says, worship the water? The water is reliant on the clouds. The clouds, if the clouds give water, then there's water. If not, there's no water. He says, okay, worship the clouds. He says, clouds? The wind comes. And the wind blows away the clouds. He says, worship the wind. He says, wind? What do you mean? If you look, and he, he says something which is uh, elaborated elsewhere in Jewish sources, but a, a human encompasses all the wind within him means that the wind that's within us, which is referring to the spirit, doesn't escape from us. So humans are more powerful than the wind. She says, worship the wind. So Nimrod is frustrated with him. He says, listen, here's a fire. Either you worship it or I throw you in. Of course, they bring a whole procession, everyone's gonna watch it. Abraham is faced with this ultimate challenge. How uh, old is he at this point? we're not told the exact age. A young young child. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly, maybe 10, 15. Maybe there are some sources that say here. So everyone's there watching, and Abraham's brother, Haran, or Haran he says like this. He says, it's either Abraham versus Nimrod, right? I'm going to wait to pitch sides. Right? I'm going to jump in the wagon of the winner. If Abraham wins, I'll follow Abraham. If Nimrod wins, I'll follow Nimrod. So what happens Abraham says, sorry, you know, I'm done, right? They throw him in the fire, and miraculously he survives. The Almighty intercedes on his behalf. So then Nimrod, of course, is the guy who is not impressed because he knew God, yet he rejected him nonetheless. And he says, okay, any more volunteers? People say, no, 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 I'm not going to take my chances. I'm going to go bow down. But Haran, Abraham's brother, says... You're looking at him. Abraham won, right? That'll work for me. He throws Haran in and now Haran dies. Oh, the, brother dies. And the brother dies as well. And the difference is, is that Abraham went in with the intention of giving up his life for God. When you commit yourself to God, God commits himself to you. Haran went in with the intention of being saved. He wasn't committing himself to anything. You get thrown in a fire. You get incinerated. That's what happens. Those are the rules of the, rules of the world like all those people walking on the rocks the other day. Tony that's right. <laughs> now, I'll, 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 I want to stop in here and, and, and draw out an interesting lesson. Um, we look down shamefully at the pagans of yesteryear. Uh, how could an intelligent person submit himself to something physical, senselessly believe that it wields power over him? But I want to point out something that's going to be a little unsettling here. Uh, we matured as a group, we could hear it. In truth, we indeed are almost no different than the pagans of yesteryear. Because in our lives, we make choices and we make prioritizations that also are senseless. And we went through this exercise before, I'm not going to go through it again. But if anyone, and we all do this, so all of us, prioritizes a physical and material world that we all know has a shelf life. We all know that in 100 years from now, give us 110. 110 years from now, we're all dead? Everyone agrees? We're all dead? Okay, so there's a maximum of 110 years of every physical material pursuit that we undertake. That's the maximum. It's it's like those 99-year leases, right? We can never actually have it forever. Never. But we do one mitzvah, a mitzvah accrues to our spiritual bank account, not a physical bank account, and that lasts us forever. I was I was teaching on Shabbos. There's this amazing Rambam that says I mentioned this last week that you do one mitzvah perfectly, and you earn via that mitzvah eternal life in Olam Yet we see it's common that people prioritize this world and its pursuits over Olam and it's senseless. And I think there's going to come a time where just like we look down shamefully at the pagans of yesteryear that were so silly and so illogical to prioritize uh, you know, images of, of stone and wood and make that a priority in their life, we do the same as well. Right? We also take a very narrow-minded approach towards what's important in life. And I think that's an interesting lesson uh, that we could learn from, you know, these people weren't dumb. You know, we, we like to think of, you know, our society as being so developed and so progressive and so intelligent and we're logical and we have it all figured out when we really don't, of course. Um, these were the same people as us. And in fact, there's there intellectual titans in times, uh, in times past that have tr- done tremendous things uh, cognitively. These people were not dumb. It's just they were, uh, you know, they had a misconception. They made a mistake of how to direct their priorities. And indeed, that's something that we also are victims of and something we have to reexamine as well. Abraham marries Sarai. Sarai is, by the way, the daughter of his brother. So that brother that decided to jump the fire foolishly. His daughter is... Sarai. So Abraham marries his niece and uh, they become a tag team. So every accomplishment and every um, development and every contribution that Abraham makes from then on, it's actually from Abraham and Sarah together. And if Abraham would hold a lecture for the men on one side of the town, Sarah would gather all the women on the other side of town and they have concurrent lectures. And they develop. Massive followings, uh, each one of them independently, that of course would uh, uh, come together in this movement. Yeah, yeah
1: I had a question. So, at, at this point, you say he developed all a Torah within him.
0: We didn't get to that, but we'll get to that a little later, yeah. He, uh, but
1: he violated the yeah. commandment by marrying his niece, isn't that
0: There's condition? no Torah commandment against marrying your niece. No, that's, that's Fair game. A relationship? Yeah, nope. It's not prohibited. Okay. It's creepy and it's uh, inadvisable. In fact, actually. Mm-hmm place I mean uh, surprising the Talmud actually does say that a person should marry his niece you know why why because he should marry his sister's daughter not his brother's daughter it's Abram married his brother's daughter he married his niece okay fine but uh, he should marry his sister's daughter because this is what the Talmud says a man a brother loves his sister and if he loves his sister, he'll love her children. And thus, he'll marry someone that he loves and he'll have a happy life. That's the Talmud's uh, logic. What it's telling us is find someone that you're going to love and going to bear and going to have, develop your relationship and choose that person to marry.
1: But is that a commandment? Or no, it's not a commandment. A it's not suggest- a commandment. But,
0: but no, but, but Abraham was, enti- was allowed to marry. This just like we are. It's not a prohibited relationship. Okay, um... After some time, Abraham and Sarah move to a place called Haran. Now, this is significant because Abraham's uh, Abraham's, I guess, uh, his mission, his movement was curtailed, was curbed because of the foreign uh, or the leadership that gave him resistance. So he actually moved to a place, to Haran, where Nimrod was not the tyrant, there was not the the dictator, and thus he would have more freedom uh, to pursue his mission of teaching the world about God. Uh, And there, uh, if the movement uh, was growing and developing in Ur-Kasdim, it really flourished in Haran. Like I said, they influenced tens of thousands of people Uh, They would go on lectures, it's interesting, the the sources uh, point to two different methods of instruction that they would have. They would, uh, he would give these big lectures where he would debate people, of course, trounce them with his logic and reasoning. uh, Which is a very sharp way of instruction, right? You go there and someone, you know, and there's a debate and people already have preconceived notions as to which side of the argument they're on. And, you, you know, you expose the fallacies and the holes in the logic of your opponent. You make him look foolish, of course. And, uh, of course, people are influenced as well. And the Talmud says is that Abraham would have an entirely different, I would say, almost opposing method to deal with individuals. So what it says is as follows. Abraham was famous for his kindness. We'll get to more about that in a little bit. Abraham's kindness was world-renowned. In fact, when he's called in Jewish sources, Chesed l'Avraham, kindness for Abraham, that is his quality that embodied him. That is his personification. That is his calling card. That's his legacy, his, his, his kindness. So we're told that Abraham would set up shop in a crossroads. And he engineered a certain kind of tent that had entrance-ins on all sides, which is a way of saying he would welcome anyone that came in. And what would he do when they came in? So we actually get a description of this in the Torah. He would take care of them. We would take off their, sh- their shoes and shine the shoes and give them some water and, and clean them up and say, how you doing and how you feeling and this and that, and then make them the most sumptuous meal that they've ever had. He would take, Abram was a very wealthy man. We'll get to maybe uh, how he became so wealthy, but everything he touched turned into gold. Every pursuit that he had was successful. So Abraham would uh, just give him delicacies and give him food and, 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 and slaughter animals, fresh, fresh animals, and provide them with told that he had three guests and he slaughtered three cows because there's a certain part of the tongue which is so succulent and it only gives one serving per. So he would slaughter three cows because he had three guests. Just unbelievable stuff that he would do. And after he would take care of them for hours and hours, feeding them and tending to their physical needs they would get up to go but what happens when someone gets up to go Right, this is the (laughs) law of reciprocity when someone gives you something you feel indebted to give something back so they would say thank you so much you're so kind, you're so superlative kindness, right and Abraham said wait, you're thanking me don't thank me thank God what? what are you saying? thank God? I don't even know what you're talking about I well, know what I'm talking about. And then he would just explain to him in a very calm way, in a logical way. They're already on his side, so to speak. They like him. He's so nice, he's so warm, he's so kind, so friendly, so giving, so benevolent, so generous. And then he presents crystal clear logic. People are like, that makes so much sense. I've been living my life so erroneously. Where do I sign? So, Abraham used these two methods. Method number one of absolute fierce debate and competition. Let's get the biggest stage we have. Let's have the masses. And Abraham would establish, and at least people would know in their heart of hearts, Abraham was right. Maybe they wouldn't be convinced quite yet because they had resistance. But in, his heart of hearts, in the heart of hearts, they knew this guy is saying something that made sense. Uh, With individuals, he would go with the opposite approach. He would start with kindness, overwhelming kindness, and then afterwards he would use that as a means to influence them uh, uh, theologically as well. Now, at the age of seventy-five, Abraham has a burgeoning movement. Abraham and Sarah, of course, uh, they have tens of thousands of followers who are on their own teaching as well, and Abraham receives prophecy now. This is important for the theme of the talk that prophecy is not something you get randomly. You know, in 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 greater society and mythology, we're saying, "Well, someone can get prophet, anyone get prophecy, right?" Wake up in the the night, you get prophecy. You know what happens in Jewish court of law? If someone says, "I'm a prophet," and they're not renowned for their piety and for their scholarship and for who they are as a person, that person is labeled a false prophet and is executed summarily. But wait a minute, why, why do not you even listen to what he has to say? Well, he's a false prophet. That's not how prophecy works. Prophecy is not just luck of the draw. It's not a lottery. Just like chosen people is not a lottery. Prophecy is a reflection of someone's faith. I'll give you an example. Each one of us, every, every person in the room, within the past hundred years, experienced prophecy. You don't remember it, (laughs) huh? Let me jog your memory. Each and every person in the room and who's listening to this within the past, uh, maybe not. So if if someone is over 100, then maybe it's a little more. But most people listening to this have experienced prophecy over the last 100 years. Is
1: that implying, uh, I heard Judaism believes in reincarnation. Well, let's let's, let's put reincarnation
0: on the side here. Uh The second, wait a second, right before someone's born, the Talmud says, that they experience prophecy. Angel. Now the angel comes and smacks them, but after that, before they're about to leave, they're giving a prophetic mission in life. You want to know what the nature of the prophecy was? Anyone curious to jog your memory? <laughs> I'll jog your memory. The prophecy was that we all received the Almighty is pure, the angels are pure, your soul is pure, if you guard your soul in its purity good, if you don't, I'll take it away from you. That's part of the prophecy. Every single one of us experienced prophecy in the past. Well, wait wait, wait a minute, Rabbi, you just told me that prophecy is something that you earn. Maybe some of us are worthy of prophecy, but everyone listening, everyone in the world experienced that? How is that possible? The answer is, critical point here, this might require a little bit of thinking a soul that is unadulterated that is unhindered that is in isolation every soul is capable of prophecy because a soul is like I said it's pure like God and thus there's no interferences in that communication if I could isolate a soul and remove any other factors right away there'll be prophecy problem is our soul is not isolated The problem is our soul is fused by a much more powerful influence that we call, there's different names we give it, we call it either Yetzerah, evil inclination, we call it materialistic iteration, it's called Homer in Jewish literature. And that disrupts any communication between God and the soul because something which is the exact antithesis of God is standing in the way. But all of us are capable of prophecy provided that we remove, we remove the inhibitors to prophecy. We're all prophets, it's just the problem is that our prophecy antenna is covered by this very thick layer of prophecy disrupting material that we need to remove if we want to achieve prophecy. Thus, in the age of 75. He becomes a prophet, or he experiences the first episode of prophecy. What does that mean about Abraham himself? It means that Abraham cleared away those barriers between his soul and God. Abraham's soul was like our soul. Maybe Abraham's soul was more capable. That's, a good, that's likely, I would say. But Abraham, before he was born, also achieved prophecy. All of us have... Souls that are capable of prophecy. That's the minimum of a soul. Souls capable of prophecy. Every soul has prophecy. When you say
1: every
0: soul, you mean every soul of every religion? No. Every soul of every human. Humans have souls, yes. Every soul is capable of prophecy. The problem is is that once we're born, a uh, prophecy retardant layer is uh, covering our soul, and until that's removed, We cannot have prophecy. So by definition, to be a prophet is to be someone who worked on removing and clearing away all those inhibitors to prophecy.
1: That's why I guess there's that Torah uh, provision that says um, the the proclivity or predilection of man is evil from his youth, correct? It doesn't say from birth, right? It says the way of a child's heart is
0: yeah but well, but that but that, that word that that, that word, word leva adam urav, which is uh, the beginning of genesis chapter 9 right uh, but the word that it says is Yetzer. what is Yetzer yatser it's referring to the yatsara but
1: what is what are the what's the english
0: translation eh, evil inclination what are you saying, from I mean, Nourav, when? From birth? From, from Nurov means his young, from youth.
1: Okay, so because that, but if, may, if it was from birth, that might contradict what you were saying. Well, it's so.
0: maybe at birth, but not okay. before that. The point is, is that there is some point in time in our lives where that's not true. So I would agree. That's an interesting uh, um, insight. There is a point in our development where we don't have the Eitzharah, and thus we don't have this evil inhibitor that resists God. By the way, you know what another name for this... Uh, for this uh, Yitzra'is, is? Hmm? Your conscience? So the Talmud says, in the book of Shabbos, the conscience I wouldn't say is necessarily evil. Conscience is your, what's called your nefesh. It's more like your awareness. Um, the Talmud says as follows, the book of Shabbos, page 105b. It takes a verse, a verse in the Torah says, lo yihiye becha elzar you shall not have within you a foreign god foreign god within you i thought it just say you shouldn't have a foreign god on your wall or on your floor or in your temple or re- what do i mean a foreign god within you Ask the talmud what is this foreign god that's within a person and it answers that's the yetzerah the evil inclination what does that mean it means that we have god and we have the foreign god and our soul is, cle- is 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 yearning to connect to God, but it happens to be enveloped in a foreign god in the eighth sarah. you clear away the foreign God and then thus you expose your soul to connect to god himself but how come I mean there's been some pious
1: people over the last several centuries ahmanis you know. Many people that have not experienced prophecy.
0: Well, they did as babies. <laughs>
1: but they haven't posed, and they, I mean, were they not perfected enough?
0: So that's a, that's a, that, that's a good question. But um, in, my, uh, in my discovery, I found that there's the level of clearing away the, the Yetzarah and thus exposing your soul and bringing God into a reality in your life. There's many, many, many levels of that. I came up with at least 10 lo- different, distinct levels of faith. We went over that and you said, We that's did. Like we that's right. Right. So there is a point in time in our development. I, in, my, in my construct, it's, I believe, level six or seven that we're told that it's not possible for someone post the destruction of the temple to achieve that. Um, To do this is not easy. And even great, 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 great people like Rabbi Akiva was not capable of prophecy or at least not that high level of prophecy um, because it's something which is very difficult and it also might be a result of souls that are less capable. Because the closer the soul is to Sinai, the more potent it is. So uh, by way of continuing our analogy, let's assume you do have this receptor, this antenna that picks up signals. But the stronger the antenna, the more distant signals it could pick up. So maybe if you completely expose your antenna, so yes, you achieve perfection because you did everything you could possibly do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you actually have to have, you'd be able to have full-fledged prophecy because your antenna's weaker. Oh, he spent the entire time battling not only foreign gods that are external to him, but foreign gods, the foreign god that's internal to him as well. You remove that, and then automatically you have prophecy as a result. How could you define
1: prophecy, and are there different forms of prophecy?
0: Many, 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 many different forms of prophecy. Just like the Ram tells us that there's many levels of wisdom, like we all know, people with different levels of wisdom, different levels of prophecy. So what would be like? prophecy, uh, general definition well, different levels of prophecy we have prophecy that's still possible today called Ruach HaKodesh, was called the Holy uh, Spirit and uh, translated Whatever these, trans- these things are translated it doesn't come out so good, but there are levels of prophecy that's still possible today it's a very, very, very low level of prophecy, I wouldn't even call it prophecy, it's not called Nevuah, it doesn't share the same term, but it's some sort of communication or interaction uh, that we could have with a spiritual world yeah, well, I- I- intuition, that's, that's uh, metaphysical intuition. The Talmud says, for example, I'll give you an example here, that uh, a dream is the 60th of prophecy. So there is some sort of hint that we could have. If you've ever, if you've ever experienced uh, a dream that actually came true and like you're in a real-world situation, you're like, mm, I've been here before, like, I've experienced this once before, I know how this is going to end and it's this weird feeling, because it's very hard to quantify it, that is an example of some sort of inkling of prophecy that you may have had. But that's, of course, like, Moshe has taught all of Torah directly from God without Moshe at all interpreting anything because he's a direct channel of God. That's, of course, a a vastly different level of prophecy. Maybe we schedule a time to talk about uh, the various levels of prophecies and what we could get and how we get it. So you're
1: going to say that deja vu is like
0: Well, no, not necessarily. But there is this idea of a dream being on a certain level of a a prophecy. Whatever that is, good question. So, like, you have had, well, there you go. So, you've experienced something like that. Um, I mean, I don't think that's unusual. It's not unusual at all. No, everyone has dreams. But, like I said, you've had prophecy, actual prophecy, right before you were born. We all did. Okay, let's, uh, let's continue. So Abraham, we, we get here a little bit of an insight, which I think is the kernel of the idea that I want to develop throughout the course of, uh, of, of the talk. And by the way, Sarah was a greater prophet than Abraham. So whatever we're saying about Abraham and Sarah, these, the, the, they, they were in lockstep on this. When we say that Sarah was a greater prophet than Abraham, it means Sarah removed the foreign god within her even to a greater degree than Abraham did. Now, what is the content of the first prophecy that Abraham receives? So he's told, Lechilcha ma'artzecha, abandoned your land, Beisavicha, from your father's home, Moladcha, from your your homeland, to some land that I will show you. He's not told which land. Of course, that's referring to the land of Israel. Uh, Abraham, of course, goes to Israel, and in Israel, right when he arrives, he receives another wonderful tiding. I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And he's given, the first hint of, he's given the first hint of this idea that he's going to be the father of a nation that's going to occupy the land of Israel and is going to be God's people. Now, we see a pattern, of course, between Abraham and his... Uh, his, you know, his descendants, that Abraham was told by God, whoever blesses you will be blessed, whoever curses you will be cursed. And we see this in pattern in Jewish history. Uh, one glaring example, the acme, the high point, the peak of civilization in Spain was what's called in Jewish history the Golden Age of Spain, from about the year 800 to the year 1200, where the Jewish people were given some sort of autonomy in Spain. They were given official recognition. They were able to live unmolested, And that indeed marks the high point of Spanish civilization as a whole. In fact, only a few months after the Jews were forcibly kicked out of Spain in a terrible fashion, they were actually asked to come back. You know why? Because what happens? Suddenly the financial system collapses and commerce collapses and interaction with other societies uh, starts to wane and intellectual achievements, intellectual uh, and uh, uh, Innovations that helped everyone suddenly, that the, everyone realized, whoa, the Jews were a boon to the society, and we foolishly decided to get them out. But we see that the society's rise and fall can be mirrored on a graph. Obviously, of course, this is a big time, macro sense uh, to their treatment of Jews.
1: Well, actually, Germany prospered after World War II without Jews.
0: Okay, fine. So maybe that, uh, yes, like I said, you have to look at, to look at it in macro terms. Um,
1: Why are they inviting them back? Mm-hmm. Came to terms. Yeah. Well, there were
0: about about 100,000 in Germany. Probably they're, they're actively inviting the Jews
1: back.
0: Yes. The, you were
1: saying that they, the they saying had this large following, head. and, you know, when I think of Jews, I think of... A biological um, yeah, they
0: descendant. Was right? What the, the followers? Yes. Did they become there, Jewish they eventually, they or did they? so some of them. So they're actually called converts because they converted not to a religion, but to an idea, to an idea and an ideal and an ideology. Uh, some of them we know stuck with the people, like for example Eliezer, Abraham's right hand man. He wasn't biologically Jewish but he was ideologically Jewish. Um, and it's likely that converts today are descendants of Abraham's followers, even though they're not descendants of Abraham himself. So that's an interesting idea. But what is perplexing is we know that while Abraham had a movement that developed and, and grew, we don't know what happened to those people they, a lot of them fell off. The question, big question that we have to ask is why, but that's maybe for a separate talk. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about Abraham, how we study Torah, and just trying to develop this idea of, of not looking at him uh, simplistically. Um, I mentioned this before. I'll say it again. Oh, a, few, a few months back here, we talked about Abraham and Moses and Mashiach, these three individuals, um, that represent three different eras in human history, and certainly in Jewish history. <clears throat> but we're told, something very curious about them, that all of them will ride on a donkey. You know, we spoke about this in the past. Uh, and it seems a bizarre insight. You know, wouldn't it be nice if we gave, this is America, the Mashiach came, we give a nice Cadillac, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe we give him a, a Tesla, but why? Like, what's this idea of of driving on a donkey? Not only that, we're told in the Talmud that the same donkey that Abraham drove, and the same one that Moshe drove, and the same one that Mashiach will ride. It seems a bizarre idea to think that we're just told about the, the we're told about the methods of transportation of great Jewish leaders. But as students of Torah, we're trained to look at it a little bit more critically, and. Perhaps to recognize that it's not merely uh, a mode of transportation that Abraham, Moses, and the Messiah share. Rather, it's actually a description of character. And what we mentioned that the, 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 the donkey is representative of our physicality. Even the word that we use, Homer, sounds very much like the word for a donkey, which is chamor. And when Abraham, Moses, and Messiah, the three transformational leaders, they're the ones who drive a donkey, who ride a donkey. As if to say, they, have, they commandeer, they control their physicality. They're in total dominion over their physicality. Abraham conquered his foreign god within him. That is his chomer, that is his proverbial donkey. And he was in total control over it. It did not wield any control over him. He make, wrote it. It did not ride him. Yes? Can
1: you make that analogy as a, in today's, uh, as a Democrat? Uh,
0: uh, we're not going to go there. Well. Now, <laughs> We're told. Sorry, I couldn't resist we're told that Abraham studied all of Torah by himself. Even though it was not yet revealed, Moshe comes... 500 years later, of course. Mount Sinai happens h- hundreds of years later. How did Abraham study all of Torah himself? What did he do? Advanced copy. Okay. We, we, well, okay, so you can say he's a prophet and thus he had an advanced copy. <laughs> but, we're to- but he had an advanced copy to everything. In fact, we're told that he even knew innovations that are rabbinic, things that happen even later. Very bizarre. So the Talmud asks, Mehechan lamad Avram avinu Torah. From where did Abraham study Torah? And we're given two answers, which in reality are the same answer. The first answer is me'atzmolamah. He learned it from himself. And the second answer is that his two kidneys became like two jugs of water that were wellsprings that taught him Torah. But where are your kidneys? They're within you, right? In fact, they're deep within you. Whenever the Talmud and Jewish literature talks about kidneys, it's referring to something which is at the the depths of someone's innards. Now, how do you study Torah from within you? You can only study Torah from within you if the Torah is actually within you. So let's connect a few points together. We're all capable of prophecy because our soul is capable of prophecy. You know what else our soul does not need any instruction in? Torah. We've already got it at birth. We had it at birth because bef- at birth we have prophecy and we have Torah because our soul is capable of prophecy with God and has Torah innately. Just like every cell, every human cell, has in it the entire human genome. In A, t- a single cell, tiny, so small, I can't even imagine how small it is. But it has within it all the data of all the human body. In fact, I, I read recently, um, someone was writing about how efficient is DNA, the storage of DNA, d- data being stored in DNA. It said that if, if all of the data that Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon, all that data together, which if it was as efficient as the way the human body stores data, it would weigh a kilo. But of course, they have to have city, entire cities of data centers that uh, use, you know, a, an insane amount of electricity to, to keep their data going. But we all, all have that within us. A single cell, if you could just write out the data, it would, it would be insane how much information it has. It's a
1: matter of time. If you, if you remember the desk set, logic, Okay, maybe. Crazy
0: and well, you're talking about the Moore's Law. We'll talk about, we can argue what Moore's Law. Have, we're getting very distant from Abraham. But... A soul has all of Torah implanted within it. It's got all of it within it. If you could somehow find a way to shed yourself of everything that separates your consciousness from your soul, of removing all the foreign elements, of riding the donkey yourself, being in total control and not having to control you, you could study Torah internally. You could study, and of course, the 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 Talmud gives a a little bit of Talmudic flair. That he exposed his kidneys, which means he exposed the soul that was latent and dormant within each and every one of us. But he exposed it, and it rushed forward, and all the data was brought out from within. He studied all of Torah. So we see Abraham's Torah study, Abraham's prophecy, and indeed, I would say Abraham's kindness as well. It wasn't just isolated. Elements. it was actually a result of hard work that it's unimaginable to rid yourself of every influence of of evil inclination. What kind of monumental effort that is. And by the way, that goes with putting God in control of yourself, of accepting God, you have to get rid of the foreign God. If you are going to accept the dominion of God, to the degree that you rid yourself of the dominion of the foreign God within you, that's the degree that you allow yourself to have, to come under the wings of one God. So essentially, to the degree that we still have the Yetzirah controlling us, that part of our life, whatever area that that takes up, cannot be controlled by God. They're they're, they're mutually exclusive. So when someone says, I got a very... uh, controlling Yates are right. It controls me. It tells me what to do in the morning, afternoon, night. I'm totally under its spell. But I believe in God. That belief is theoretical. It's actually not practical because it's a belief, but you have another foreign God that trumps your, so so to speak, invisible one God that you claim to believe in. Because if you really believe in it, it would be manifest in your behavior, your attitude, your priorities in life to the degree that your priorities and your attitudes in life are divergent from what they ought to be in a spiritualistic sense, that demonstrates, indeed, that you don't believe in God. Maybe theoretically you do, but is that really considered belief? And Abraham was the one who rid himself of his internal foreign god, and that is how he got the kindness, and that's how he got the prophecy, and that's how he got the Torah, and that's how he got, indeed, the idea of monotheism. Go ahead.
1: So people are actually born. The long time they were exposed to Torah they were born, even though Torah
0: had not been. And indeed that's a tradition. That's a tradition that each that, that every Jewish child knows that a child in uterus Torah is all of Torah. Right? Well, how do you do that? well because your soul has it all within you. And until you do get the influence of your proverbial donkey, until you get the eighth at birth, you're a prophet. You're like Abraham, basically.
1: Like when you say study Torah, when we think of Torah, we think of creation. We talked about Abraham and all the other characters until Moses at the end. So if we're a baby or not even born, we study Torah. And you said Abraham studied Torah. Now, if he's part of the Torah, as we read his stories...
0: That's, that's a good question. So is so he the,
1: studying himself?
0: No, so he's not, stu- himself he's not he's not studying... That? He's not remember the narratives of the Torah, so this is an important thing. I know we get a little bit off topic, but I think it's a critical question. Why if what does the word Torah mean? Torah means instruction. Okay. So why does Torah have stories? So you can learn. Because the stories are instructive. So the story is a way to tell over a Torah lesson. And that's why some stories are included and some stories are not included. Torah is not a book of history, even though it may be historical, because the Torah is a book of instruction. If history, we learn from it history, then fantastic. That's part of the lesson that we can draw out of it. But Abraham could study the lessons of Torah, even though they're not masked in stories. When you read a story in the Torah, be it about Abraham, about Joseph, about Judah, about whomever, about Moses, your goal as a student of Torah is to try to extract from that the lesson that's meaningful to you. It's not just history, you know. It's a lesson. So Abraham got Torah. He got all the lessons of Torah, even though he didn't get the stories and the narratives of the Torah. Okay, Okay, so one more thing here, just to round this out. Abraham, we're told, his book of idolatry contained 400 chapters. Now, what does that mean? We have in the Talmud a book called Avodah Zara, which means idolatry. It's the Torah's perspective on idolatry. And it has five chapters. When Abraham, his book contained 400 chapters. Now, what is idolatry for us? Idolatry for us is things we can never do, right? The Things that we dissociate it from. Whenever a Jew would ever bow down and prostrate themselves before an idol, no Jew would do that, right? Of course not. Abraham took that and expanded it to nearly everything in the world, everything that's not God. To Abraham, his book was so comprehensive, his polarization of it's either God or it's idolatry. If it's not God, it's idolatry. If I'm not associated with God, it's idolatry. Abraham included under the umbrella of idolatry everything that's not God. And that, to him, he rejected and repelled it the same way we repel to actual idolatry, prostrating ourselves and taking an an idol and saying, you're my God. To us, that's unthinkable. To Abraham, in his growth and development and eradication of this internal foreign God that we all have, he made everything that is under the auspices of the eights of which everything that's not God, he made it as vivid and as just non-negotiable as we do actual idolatry. And this process, imagine what kind of giant titan we're dealing with. Someone who everything that's not God is totally evil and totally idolatrous. Well, to be clear, something that's not God but that brings you to God is valuable. Not essentially but it's valuable because it is a tactic that you can employ to get God. So that he would value in respect to how much it brings him to God. But the 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 way he prioritized his life, the what he assigned value to in his life, was based upon only one priority, only God. And if it's something that's not God, it has zero value, and in fact, it is idolatry. Well, some things that can bring you to God, like you know, so Abraham would have an animal, he would slaughter and give it to someone, uh, to, to a stranger in the form of kindness. He valued that because of how it can bring him to God. Now, I think maybe that alone would be enough to alter our perception of, of Abraham, but there's more, of course. Abraham, we're told, is given ten tests with ten tests, Abraham was tested. Now, we're all tested with tests all the time. That's what it means to be a human. It means to be put in an area of conflict where you're going to invariably face tests and your success and or failure in those tests will result in who you are as a human, how you grow or regress. Abraham's tests are unique Because Abraham is building the spiritual makeup of the Jewish nation. So when Abraham has a test, that accomplishment, when he succeeds, changes him, but it also changes his progeny. And thus, when we look at Abraham's tests, we actually will find direct parallels between the qualities that the Jewish people display throughout our history. So for example, Abram is told, leave your family, leave your father, leave your household, leave your country, and move to the unknown. What's he really telling him? He's telling him, do something very scary, the great unknown, because of what you believe. This has essentially been the core of our nation to face resistance and to be wandering and to face opposition because of what we believe and what we espouse. And we're told to leave. We have to leave France, we have to leave Germany, we have to leave England, we have to leave Portugal, we have to leave Spain, we have to leave North Africa. We're always moving around, we're itinerant as a nation because of what we believe. How do we have the fortitude to do that and to maintain our conviction and our commitment, and our destiny, and our mission. How do we do that? That comes from Abraham. That's because his test becomes the spiritual makeup of our people. So I'm I'm not going to go through all of them, uh, but, you know, Abraham's, uh, let's go through another another example here. Abraham is is told, so Sarah is barren. Abraham is 86 years old. He's been in Israel now for 11 years. He doesn't stop for a second. He's relentless in trying to achieve his mission. Uh, but unfortunately, what does he see? He says it's him, it's his wife. He has thousands and tens of thousands of people. But he's being promised he'll have a nation, he'll be a people, he'll be a father of many nations, and all these things that he's promised. Actually, it was not promised that until a little bit later. But Sarah is barren. In fact, we're told that Sarah did not even have the hardware necessary to produce a baby. Why that is, is a separate question. What does Sarah advise Abraham in chapter 16 of Genesis of how to change that? To take her your gar to, to take her gar. Let me ask you a question. If, you know, in modern day, if people are, people, modern day society, right, unfortunately, there's a lot of infertility in Modern world, especially because women and even men, as they get older, their capacity and their sperm counts and their ovulation—those themes get a little bit more difficult to uh, to be to be successful in. They get married with a thirty-five, thirty-six. They got to freeze their eggs. The whole the hassle, right? You get married when you're, you know, eighteen. It like, works perfectly fine. Side note: Ignore that rant if you disagree with it. <laughs> Sarah's now 76. Sarah's 10 years y- younger than Abraham. She's 76 and we're told that she is no, she's past menopause. You said she didn't have the
1: equipment.
0: Well, she didn't have the equipment, but she had some, she had some parts of the equipment, not others. Okay, okay, okay. Now, let's try to find a solution. So what's the solution? Abraham will marry Hagar. This is Sarah's idea. Abraham will marry Hadar. And by doing that, Sarah will have a baby. Now, is this like a surrogate? It's not a surrogate. Sarah's actually referring to her own baby. What's clear is, is that Abraham and Sarah had an entirely spiritualistic perception of life. Entirely. The fact that Sarah is no longer menstruating doesn't mean anything as to whether or not she'll have a child. To us, we're used to, we're living in this world. We're living in the physical world. That's what matters to us. So if that's what matters to us, that's what Dominic says, well, then, of course, you know she, she, she's, it's too late, sorry. Maybe adopt a kid. <laughs> but for Sarah, the reason why she doesn't have a child is because the Almighty didn't give her a child. Well, how do you get a child? You have to convince the Almighty that you're worthy of it. Well, how do you do that? By engaging in restraint, by earning it spiritually. Well, how do you earn it spiritually? By doing something that you know is right, but painful. There's nothing more painful for a woman than to have to give up her husband, especially to someone who is inferior to. They got a little woman to help now. She's she's a, an opinion in the matter. Could you imagine? But. Sarah recognized that Abraham would have a child through her, and the pain of doing something right would be a spiritual achievement that will engender, that will allow her to have, to have a child. Now, I want to point out there's only words for Abraham and Sarah. Like, just like Haran, right? What happened with Haran, Abraham's brother? He's like, Well, Abraham turned the fire, he survived. I'll do the same thing, and I'll survive as well. Unless you're actually there you can't behave like you're there, right if unless you actually really believe in God that's the only thing you believe in nothing else you can't say I'll earn my child spiritually for us it won't work only Abraham was someone who act Abraham said who actually believe that only the only thing that matters in the world is God and everything else is just smoke screen. well therefore everything else really is smoke screen. we we actually we live in a world, the physical world, and we view that as being real, and thus it is real for us. And thus, if someone is past menopause, she cannot have a baby. I'm sorry, it's too late.
1: Is there any scriptural thing that, that indicates that God wanted, I mean, you say this was Sarah's idea. Uh, I don't say that. God the the verse says that. Them, I mean, because obviously they conceived uh, with Isaac, God... You know, allowed that to happen, where they did it themselves. Was there an intent on God's part, or was this just something Sarah came up with? And did did God want Abraham to do this?
0: Well, obviously, obviously, uh, Abraham and Sarah had a a much uh, a deeper understanding of 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 the spiritual methods of acquiring accomplishments. Um, so Sarah, as someone with her intelligence and with her perception, was able to deduce that this was the right thing to do. Uh, I, I don't know if they—I if they, don't think she was instructed to do that. I think she came to that on her own.
1: In theory, correct me if I'm wrong, they could have just waited, and they would have had their own. They did have their
0: own. Yeah, but they so, had their own maybe because we didn't have as many they had their own. Their
1: the Arab side of the equation.
0: Yeah, well, we look at it in a bigger picture. Okay. Well, I'm just, there's more.
1: In just a smidgen to, to piggyback on him, I find it hard to believe that these two spiritual-minded people would pick Hagar, with whom thoughts
0: so different. Well, Hagar, you know who she was. Who was Hagar?
1: She was Ishmael. She was. In, she was the
0: What's her? Thank you. Say that. Say that again. She was. She was an Egyptian princess. Oh. She was the daughter of Pharaoh. She was actually a remarkable woman. Be that as it may, she's very spiritually different-minded than these two people. They were clearly not a match. Well, it's not so clear. Um, Maybe she she wasn't quite like Sarah, but she was a remarkable woman. She was someone who left a life of luxury because she believed in in Abraham and Sarah and their mission.
1: Well,
0: she did a flip-flop really quick. Why do you say that? And indeed, it's... well, Ishmael, um, Ishmael and, and Islam, well. Islam and, and, and I guess the Arab world they are also spiritual heirs of Abraham maybe not quite in the same way as Abraham and Sarah's children, but they still display the midos, some of the mitos of Abraham, the hospitality for example, the commitment to an ideal, the uh, unwavering uh, tenacious belief in monotheism I think it's a little bit short-sighted to say that uh, that that Ishmael is not going to actually, in, in his own way, contribute to the Abrahamic mission at all. Of course, it needs to be tweaked a little bit. And the Rama goes on to say, it "says Ishmael is wonderful because they are." There's a billion points that people who believe in monotheism. It needs to be moderated a little bit, in, in the full sense of the word. Think? Ishmael was molesting Isaac, so she saw that Ishmael, and these things are all displayed later. Ishmael is a para Adam; he's a wild man, he's a wild animal, right? And indeed, we see this in the Arabs, right? They, they on one hand, uh, it's true, you know, they have this insatiable bloodlust. Where did they come from? It comes from Ishmael. Yet, it's also undeniable of the remarkable contribution that they have had towards eradicating uh, paganism in the world. So. It's Abraham's descendant spiritually, but it's also Hagar's descendant spiritually and it's not quite the Jewish people, but it's still in the big picture of course, you know we have issues that are uh, that are more localized and more narrow focused but the big picture it's also something which is 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 you know when we look back to history to look at individuals that are going to spawn movements and nations, and we see parallels between the two. Okay, so I, I want to I finish up quickly because I don't want to, we're, we're going over time. Um, uh, Abraham, we see Abraham and Sarah, of course. Abraham is told uh, to have a bris milah, to have a circumcision. Um, once again, uh, he's doing something which is going to be emblematic of this distinction, this distinct nation, distinct people with a distinct mark. Uh, The test of the binding of Isaac is the ultimate test, of course, wherein God tells him, do you really have only one priority in, in, in life? Because does, if anything matters besides for God, Abraham wouldn't do it. Think about it. If any moral divested of God, any love of anyone divested of God has any value aside from God, he wouldn't do it. Right? Abram loves his... Abram was the one who developed the singularity that he was able to focus on one entity and that entity alone and everything else was always measured relative to that. So Abram loved Isaac. But why did he love Isaac? Everything that Abraham valued always had to stand back to God Abraham didn't engage in child sacrifice why? it's barbaric but is that because, because that's antithetical to God so when God tells him to kill his own child and to engage in child sacrifice it's the ultimate question of do you really prioritize just God or is there anything that's independent of God is there any sort of barbarism that you wouldn't do Because God told you not to do it. Irrespective of what God told you. And thus he's told to be unkind. Abraham is the paragon of kindness. Why is he told to be unkind? He's told to kill his own kid. Child sacrifice? Why would Abraham want to do that? He's told that Isaac, who's going to be his heir, to kill him. All these things, it's a way to create the ultimate test of, does Abraham value anything on its own right? or only vis-a-vis uh, its relationship to God. So of suppose, course...
1: Suppose that, uh, he decided not to.
0: Well, then that, that would demonstrate that there was something lacking in Abraham's faith. Yeah. Of course, for us, you know, to get anywhere near Abraham's accomplishment as a four-year-old would be a huge step up. Uh, but for Abraham, it, uh, it just demonstrates this, this otherworldly uh, dedication to mission. Uh, Abraham is, of course, the father the biological, the spiritual, the theological, the ideological father of the Jewish people. Uh, Abraham was the one who began this process of bringing God into the world, of Tichor Olam, fixing the world. How do you fix the world? By first you've got to eradicate the internal uh, false God that we all have within us. You get rid of that, you do it fully, you'll actually automatically have prophecy, you automatically know all of Torah from yourself, you automatically uh, include everything that's not God under the auspices of idolatry, Uh, and Abraham's commitment uh, to this mission, irrespective of how painful it may be, how much resistance he may face, is an inspiration to us, and indeed the reason why we're around today, and the reason why we have the Abrahamic zeal to make the world better, to innovate, to be iconoclastic, to be dissenters, to be innovative thinkers, it's all a result of Abraham's drive and Abraham's passion, and Abraham's mission. Indeed, when we study Torah today, when we do kindness today, when we try to improve the world in the form of uh, being benevolent, being charitable, of, of bringing Torah to the world, of bringing God to the world, of dedication to Israel, all that is due to Abraham and Sarah and to the tremendous accomplishments, personal accomplishments of course, communal accomplishments, but national, uh, national and international and really historical uh, contributions they made. I would make the argument that uh, while ironically Abraham is not the most important figure in Jewish history, that would be Moses, Abraham is the most important figure in human history because he is the one who causes this you know, directional shift in the world where the world that he emerges into is one wherein the foreign god has total dominion. Abraham personally eradicated this foreign god from within him. Of course, that developed into the Jewish nation. But he also began the process of getting rid of the foreign god, um, the foreign god that controls um, the hearts and minds and the consciousness of all the people in the world. Our mission as a nation can be stated plainly to continue and to ultimately complete what Abraham began. Thus, Abraham is a great hero for us, and of course, his legacy continues on, and I look forward to continuing next week to investigate Isaac, a much more enigmatic figure. What he did, and the stories that were told about him in the Torah are very intriguing. What we're told, what we're not told as well. It's not quite as colorful a character as Abraham. Um, Even there's more on Abraham as well, but um, it should be very interesting. And I think... Clearly, we could say that uh, a simplistic, narrow view of what Abraham was and what he did and his accomplishments is certainly erratic. You eventually investigate the sources. Him and Sarah, really incredible, dramatic people, and uh, their legacy lives on within our nation. I thank you all. We are having class next Sunday, yes. July 4th weekend. Yes, so. Um, Wait a minute. Have yeah. a child
1: on a that's right, day. July 3rd, that's right. <laughs> huh? We um, talked about Abraham's father. Oh, and and ah, Abraham's it's a very, very patriotic birthday, yeah. very yes. close to him. And in March we're going to talk about, <laughs> about Abraham's <laughs> mother. You know, we know we don't know much about oh, him. No. We don't know much, know, we know about Abraham's um you know, I just, some of the mothers, you know, and how they treat their sons or whatever. So I was wondering if I kind of midrash or something spoke about. Mm-hmm.
0: I was interested in one point that we Yeah, it's interesting. It. We don't know much about it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. One thing about Abraham that I've always often wondered, and that yes, whenever he was prowling around. And then he was in this one area and his wife Sarah was very beautiful. And, yes. God, and then he said, uh
1: he said, a shawar, he said, No,
0: it's not. So she ended up going to the palace. Mm-hmm. Okay. But not but she wasn't touched. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So came I
1: came but that was kind of a miss. I think I don't think that was what God had wanted him to do. Well, <laughs> You know, I mean, I just think he's human, you know I mean?
0: He's, well, he's it's so not presented, uh, that, that story is, thank you so much, that, that story is not presented as Abraham making a mistake. Okay. So you have to understand why not. Yeah, and that's why I was really interested in looking at the flip side, you know what I'm saying? Because I had always thought it was Sarah
1: had maybe taken like a misstep, like maybe she just wasn't quite sure, so that's why. Hey, it Archie, seems like
0: Abraham missed missed knew him. that Sarah was untouchable. Yeah.
1: Okay, I got it, okay.
0: So I therefore...
1: Why he, I said, why would he? Yeah, it's an interesting
0: question. I need to get to all the sources and all the stories. So,
1: I mean, there's a few things that I was-